we're going to be reading the Bible together now. If you'd like to read along, you'll find today's reading on page 1,129 um, of the Church Bibles. I'll just give you a moment to look that up. We're reading from Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 through to 25. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as, it had, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. 
The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Good morning, everyone. Well, we continue the journey through Romans. It's a profound book, a lot of ideas in it, and I'm going to try and help explain what that chapter is all about. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We don't thank you for feedback, but anyway, we thank you for the uh, great people who run the technology. And uh, may your word come alive to us today. May we understand what it is you've done for us. And Lord, grant us the faith to trust your promises that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want to start with a story. It's a true story. And I'm going to share a pastoral engagement I had with someone who was dying. And it was a beautiful story. The lady's name was Maxine. And... uh, she came to my attention. She'd actually come here numbers of times uh, with her son. And I was called by her son to go and visit her, really in the last weeks of her life. She'd struggled with ill health for quite a period, and the family knew that she was slowly dying, and Maxine knew she was slowly dying as well. She knew there was a God, and she believed there was a God, but she really didn't have any idea about how she could be right with this God. And as she approached what were the final weeks of her life, she wanted to have that confidence that God would accept her. And let me say, there is something about death and the reality of it when you know you're close that quickens your mind. And that's definitely the case of what happened. And at the invitation of her son, I went and visited her and I had a wonderful time. She was on a mattress uh, at the son's place uh, on the floor and I just sat down next to her and we talked. I think I had a cup of tea and found out about her and her story. And then I got the Bible open and we read together and I prayed with her. And I remember leaving the house that day. I think I was there about an hour and a half with just this sense, this feeling that Maxine had really made a significant move spiritually and she was going to be okay. And I heard back just a few days later because her condition had been quite advanced and she was admitted into hospital and the son told me what happened when she went to the hospital and I actually knew then and there that she would be fine with God and the reason for my confidence was that I knew that now she had what I would call saving faith and that's the question I want to ask us today do we have saving faith And it's such an important thing to really know in yourself, have I got what the Bible talks about in terms of a saving faith? All of us believe something. And I love the quote from Tim Keller. He's the pastor from New York City. And uh, Tim is actually near the end of his life with pancreatic cancer, which is uh, very sad. He's been such a gift to the Christian church. He once tweeted this, if at the very least faith is what you trust in, 
then everyone has faith in something. You see, because the reality of faith is it's about what you believe in and what you trust in. And everyone in some way, shape or form will have faith in something. They will trust in something. Even for people who don't call themselves religious or people who don't believe there's a God, they will have some faith in someone or something. Because faith is a trust, it's a confidence, it's a belief in something. And some people may not believe in God or the supernatural or even in meaning of life, but they'll still have faith, they'll put their faith into something. Even, it's, even if it's just the confidence in believing that there's nothing at all to believe in. They've got a faith in that, that there's nothing. And so I say that because I think what's most important is that we actually work out what is it that we believe in. And have we come to that place of saving faith when it comes to God? It's not just enough to believe, if I can put it in these stark terms. James, the biblical writer, says even the devil believes and he shudders. There's a difference of just believing there's a God out there and actually having a saving faith in that God. What does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 4 is a chapter that's all about faith. And if you've got your Bibles there, if you've got them open, great. If you haven't, page 1129, and it'd be great if you could open up. Um, it's an interesting chapter. There's a complexity to the argument. I'm going to try and keep it as um, understandable as possible. But it's really an argument to support what Paul has said in the last section that we looked at that Scott preached, Scott preached on last week, chapter 3, verse 21 to, 29, uh, to 31. And I'm going to just pick up three verses from that uh, and read them for us. Um, chapter 3, verse 22, 24, because this chapter is a response to this truth, okay? And Paul in chapter 3 said, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the key statement, a righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. No difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are given or credited a righteousness before God. The status is a gracious gift. It's only possible because of Jesus Christ. And how do we obtain that? Well, it's through faith saving faith and Romans chapter 4 is a defense of this truth that God accepts people on the base basis of faith so let's just have a look in overview at the argument of chapter 4 I'm not going to go through in detail uh, every verse uh, if you're in a small group you'll be able to work your way through it uh, but there's four movements in this chapter let me go through them. Firstly, Abraham was credited as righteous because of faith. And in many ways, chapter 4 is an illustration of how we are justified through faith, through using the life of Abraham. And in particular, it's an exposition of one key text in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6. And so when you read the opening part of chapter 4, what shall we say then? about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter. In other words, what does Abraham teach us about justification by faith? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, well, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say, though? And you get this quote from Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, you can just hear some of the Jewish people say, oh, okay, but what about the other people in the Bible? The other people. 
Well, he then moves to King David. He says, well, what does David say about this? Verse 6, he says the same thing when he speaks about the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works of the law. And then quotes King David in Psalm 32 with his reflection on God's forgiveness that he experienced and knows is available to all people. So Paul is saying, Abraham, justified by faith. David, exactly the same thing. Then you've got this unusual section talking about circumcision. And let me say, I suspect most of us are not Jewish here. Um, and so we won't relate to it emotionally the way a Jewish person would do. And you could just imagine a Jewish person saying, hang on. But Abraham fulfilled the law. He was circumcised. And what Paul says in this next section is, yes, he was circumcised, but that came after the reality of him believing. You see it in verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? In other words, his righteousness through faith, was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And those eight verses flesh out that reality. Then you get the last section, which is verse 18 to 25. What's the result? Well, Abraham, therefore, is a model of Christian belief. Even though he didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the paradigm is the same. He was credited with righteousness, deemed part of God's family, purely because he had faith. Now, here's an interesting fact for you. I think sometimes when people read the Old Testament, they think the people in the Old Testament were saved by works, by fulfilling the law, but that changed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is that it's always been by faith in God's promises of acceptance, which we now know is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying, it's always been by faith that God credits someone as being righteous. Always. Old Testament, New Testament. The difference is they didn't understand how God would enable this through the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we saw last week, his death covers all believers before him and after him. Now, let me just make two observations, or one observation about two key words. When you go through um, this chapter, what I said is it's really an exposition of one key Old Testament verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, to support his thesis that we're justified by faith alone. And when you go to that verse, and I've got it up on the screen there, Paul quotes it uh, in verse 5, sorry, verse 3. And there's two words that appear here that are critical to this chapter, which I'm just going to spend some time getting us to think about. It's the word belief and the word credit. And you can see them up there. Firstly, the word believe, Abraham believed God, and afterwards it was credited to him as righteousness. So first word, believe. As you read through, you might have noticed there's a lot of repetition in terms of people believing or having faith. In fact, 10 times the word faith is used, five times the word believed is used. Now, it's actually from the same root word. The difference is one is the noun form, faith. In other words, you have a faith, there's a substance to it. Or there's the verb word, the active sense of it, to believe but it's actually the same word 15 times through the chapter this concept of faith or belief comes up 
And so what is it we're talking about when we're talking about faith? Because what he's describing here is saving faith. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does it mean to actually believe in God? As I said at the start, you can believe in God, but actually the demons do that and they're not saved. All that means is that they shudder. What's the difference here with Abraham and what's the difference with us? Let's have a think about Abraham. You can read his story in Genesis. There's a very nice, neat summary in Acts chapter 7 uh, when Stephen outlines the history of the people of God. And what we learn there, and it's actually a new piece of information, is that Abraham encountered the glory of God. God revealed himself to him. And in that revelation of the glory of God, he spoke to him. And we know from Genesis chapter 12 that he gave him three promises, that he would be the father of a great nation. You will go into a promised land and there will be blessing on you. And so I remember when I did my theological colleges, we used to have the uh, acronym LOB, Land Offspring Blessing. I'll never forget it. And that's what Abraham was promised. He would have a land that they would go into. There would be great offspring, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and they will be blessed. And all Abraham had to do was believe the promise. The thing about Abraham is we don't know much about him. The only thing that is commended about him is the fact that he believed the promise. How good he was, we don't know. How righteous he was in a sense of obeying the moral laws, we don't know. But God chose him and called him according to his sovereign will. And Abraham simply heard the call of God and believed the promise. And when I say believed, he didn't just acknowledge, okay, that's God speaking to me. He trusted in this promise. He believed this promise and he acted on this promise. He was living at the time in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq, uh, right down near the um, Gulf. As a result of believing the promise that he would go and be given and become the great nation, he uprooted his family. They first went up to modern-day Turkey, to Haran. His father died there, and then after that, they diverted back down towards Canaan, what we would call now the land of Israel. And what Abraham did, in the most simple terms, is he just heard the word of God and this word of promise and he believed it and he lived according to it. He trusted it. I want to give you an example of what faith is and what it's not. Who's heard of Charles Blondin? A few people? Now... This illustration has been used by Ben Adamo in the past, so some of you may be familiar, but that's all right. It's such a good illustration, I thought I would tell the story again. Um, Charles Blondin is a man who was, I think, from French kind of um, origins in Canada, Monsieur Charles Blondin. And uh, on June 1859, he became the first man in history to walk on a rope across the Niagara Falls. The tightrope was suspended 160 feet on one end, 270 feet on the other across the raging waters of the falls and the tightrope had no safety harness or net and some people report that over 100,000 people gathered to watch him walk across 
a 300-metre gap. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara, I've actually been there, and uh, you can literally feel the falls from a couple of hundred metres away. There's just this spray that comes off, and you go, oh, we're near the falls. And the crowds gathered, they cheered, and he became incredibly famous. And after that one initial trip, he made 17 subsequent um, crossings of Niagara Falls. Now, he made a lot of money out of it, um, and he worked out he could make money. He did it on stilts once. He did it riding a bicycle once. He did it blindfolded once. He once uh, stopped in the centre and did tricks, including cooking an omelette on a little something he had in his backpack that he got out and cooked an omelette. He even carried a person across on his back, and you can see the photo there. Incredible. Now, at one point, the great Blondin is going to, getting ready to go over, and he calls out to the crowd, do you think... I could take someone across in a wheelbarrow. And this man calls out, you can do it, Blondin. And so Blondin responds, okay, get in. Come with me. Do you think the guy got in? No. <laughs> he just said, no. <laughs> See, the man was saying, I believe you can do it. But actually, I don't trust my life that you can do it. Saving faith is when we put our trust in the hands of God and his promises to us through Jesus Christ. And we simply believe those promises and we trust him with our life. And that's the difference between us and the devil. The devil knows he's there. He believes he's there. He absolutely knows that. But he does not trust him and follow him. If that man believed in Blondin, biblically speaking, he would have said, yes, I trust you and I get in and you take me across. Now, let me say, would I have gotten in the wheelbarrow with Blondin? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I've stood on the edge and gone, no. But saving faith is when we hear the promises of God through Jesus Christ, that he's died for us, that he's risen again and he says, come to me, I'll forgive you. Come and trust me with your life. And we give our life to him, we trust him. And it's by simply believing in him, by trusting in him, that we're saved. You see, real belief is trusting God's promises to you. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 4 in his introductory statement about Abraham. Verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are, credited, are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, and it's interesting that the word trust is inserted here, who justifies the ungodly, their faith, their trust in God and his promises is credited as righteousness. It's by faith alone God justifies us, God credits us as righteous. 
And what he's explained in great detail is actually we cannot work to earn our way there. And so it's a false economy to try and think that. But the one who does not work, who realizes that and looks at the Lord Jesus and hears his word of promise to him and believes in him, he is the one who is credited as righteous. Which leads me to the second word, credited. And you can see there in verse 4, now the one who does not work but trusts in God, their faith is credited as righteous. And credited is not a complicated word in the original language. Uh, it means to reckon something to you, to credit something to you. I mean, I could credit some money to you and uh, say, look, uh, $100. Um, but I thought a, a better way to explain crediting something to someone is to tell you a little bit about the story of Dave Endoamana for those who are not familiar with it. Um, Dave came here in 2013 as an asylum seeker refugee. And he literally walked in the door and joined us at St Matthews in 2013. And his status was a refugee. Now, after a long journey, I won't go into the details, but seven years later, in 2020, he received an email from the Australian government making him aware that he had been granted permanent residency. And they had credited that, they'd reckoned that to him. Now that's him singing the national anthem at the Bledisloe Cup game two years ago. Uh, and if you watch rugby, make sure you tune into the England game when they play in Sydney at the SCG because David is singing the national anthem again. And I think he's also singing at the South African game in September as well. And I hope every South African here is cheering for the Aussies on that day. I know what you guys are like. <laughs> but David did not earn this. He was credited it. And it changed his status before God. No longer a refugee, now permanent resident. And I can tell you that change of status has literally changed his life. And he's in the process of applying for citizenship. You've got to wait a couple of years after PR before you can get citizenship, which is a good process. And hopefully, prayerfully, confidently, in the next year or two, he will be an Aussie. We, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, are credited as righteous. Your faith is credited as righteousness. As you trust in the Lord Jesus, God credits to us righteousness. Which means that the way he sees us is no longer as someone who is sinful, broken, estranged from him, an enemy. But we are now seen as righteous in right standing with him as part of his family, adopted as his children. And the incredible news is, what we have to do is simply believe the promise. You don't work for it. You rather hear God speaking to you through his son, the Lord Jesus, and his promise of forgiveness and life, and you say, yes, I'm yours. 
I believe you. Listen to what it says at the end of the chapter. Speaking of Abraham, verse 20, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. He kept believing the promise. Verse 22, This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But note, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What is saving faith? It is believing God's promise for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We take hold of those promises and we believe them in Christ. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you a bit of Reformation theology I'm going to take you back to the 16th century. One of the great men of the Christian church is a man called John Calvin. He wrote his Institutes, I think at the age of 21, which is a theology and it's just profound. And this is from uh, the third volume, section 2.7, for those who want to go and check it out. And it's a statement about saving faith. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. In other words, his goodness to us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. It's this knowing that we have promises from Jesus that are good and we believe them. And it's revealed both to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You know as you believe that God is for you in Christ. We understand it with our heads, it's sealed on our hearts by God's Spirit. And we're born again. And it's purely by faith, a firm and certain knowledge of God's goodness towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promises in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed on our hearts. You see, what happens when we believe in God? We take hold of His promise that we're forgiven and that we're accepted and that we're part of His family. Let me tell you the rest of the story about Maxine and why I was so confident about her being with God when she would die. When I had had the cup of tea and opened the Bible up to read, she asked me a very important and a very honest question. She said to me, Bruce, am I worthy enough for God? Let me say, it's a question I think many people ask. Am I worthy enough? And it's a right question to ask. There's an honesty to the question. And my answer might shock you because she was asking, have I lived a good enough life for God to accept me? And I said this as gently as possible. Actually, no, you're not worthy enough, Maxine. She just looked at me. Now, I quickly added, I'm not either. Your son's not either. In fact, no one is worthy. And that's what Romans 3 has been show, shown us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I said, but there is someone who is worthy. His name is Jesus. He's died for you. He's risen again and he's calling you to come to him. He is the one who can bring you to God.
And all you simply need to do is trust in him. And I read to her John 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I said, this is what Jesus is saying. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Trust in me, believe in me, and I will take you there. And then to reinforce it, one of my favorite, most simple, and it is really the most simple and profound verse, I think, in terms of assurance. It's John 6, 47, and Jesus simply says these words. He who believes has eternal life. And I said to Maxine, what Jesus is saying is believe in me, trust in me. I will get you there. And I prayed with her that day. And I could sense she had taken hold of Jesus and was trusting in him. But I discovered something beautiful about that reality just in a week's time because she got admitted shortly afterwards. And when you get admitted, you've got to fill in a form which asks you what your religion is. And she said to the person, she said, oh, what's your religion, Maxine? And she said, oh, my religion is trusting in Jesus. I think she'd formerly come from a Catholic background she was talking to the Anglican minister whose son came here and she just put it so beautifully, actually my religion is trusting in Jesus. And the woman just kind of looked at her, what? Oh, okay, I'll write that down. <laughs> and she died about a week later and I took her funeral here three years ago. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. The one who trusts personally in the Lord Jesus Christ that's what saving faith is and so let me finish by asking you do you have saving faith are you trusting in the promises of God through Jesus Christ a minister once went and was in a very similar situation to the one I was in and he was explaining to the woman because she wanted to know how I can be right with God and go to heaven. And he read John 6, 47. Jesus says, he who believes has eternal life. And the woman said to him back, so if I say I believe, will I have eternal life? And he said, no, that's not what I said. And it's not what Jesus said. And she went, what? He said, let me read it again. Jesus says, he who believes has eternal life. And she looked at him and spoke straight back and said, so if I say I believe, will I have eternal life? And he said, no. And she was confused. And he said, let me read it slowly. He or she who believes has eternal life. And then he said to her, I'm not saying he who says they believe but he who actually believes. There's a world of difference between just saying I believe something and actually trusting in that reality. World of difference. And Jesus in that most simple, profound statement is saying, do you actually believe and trust in me? Because if you do, you have eternal life. And let me say, if you do, your life will never be the same because you will now live for him who died for you.
and because that is the only basis that we can be accepted by God in heaven. Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. And as we believe in God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is credited as righteousness to us. Let's pray. I'm sure there may be people here today who you're not sure where you stand. My encouragement is to hear Jesus saying, believe in me, trust in me, come and belong to me. And he would say, when you do that, you have eternal life. I'm going to give you a moment just to respond quietly and say your own prayer of response. And then I'll pray for us at the end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand in our heads, but to know in our hearts as well, that you are good to us, that you've given us promises to base our life on, of forgiveness and hope and eternal life, and help us to believe them. And I pray, fill our hearts with a hope and a sure and a peace in believing that transforms us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.